It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. We're putting out a bonus episode of the news meeting because... Sometimes, one of the things that happens as a journalist is you go along and you listen to something and you wish that more people could hear it. And last week, I went to a meeting which doesn't sound like much. It was the findings of a long inquiry into the UK economy in 2030. And the person presenting was Torsten Bell, who is the chief executive of the Resolution Foundation, for my money, the most thoughtful think tank on the economy in the UK. And he set out the findings of this report, titled not very catchily, Ending Stagnation, A New Economic Strategy for Britain. But it felt like one of those moments where the economy, where we are, where we need to be, it all began to make some sense. And so I hope that it's interesting to listen to Torsten try and map how the UK compares with the rest of Europe, the rest of uh, the world's developed economies, but also what are the structural problems we're dealing with, why we've had no growth, why we've got such deeply entrenched inequality. Here's the conversation that follows. I hope that for you, like me, it helped make sense of where we are. Torsten Bell, thank you very much. We sometimes do these bonus episodes of the news meeting where someone comes in with a book that they've written, seductive title, snazzy cover. I think we can fairly say that you were the author of something that does neither of these things. I'm holding a copy of Ending Stagnation. What's not, what's not snappy about that? <laughs> a new economic strategy for Britain. Yeah, that's less snappy. With a map of the UK on it. I don't know whether or not the UK is adrift. The UK is just lost in a sea. It's stagnant, James. It's stagnant. And its stagnation needs ending. So, but when you presented these findings after this inquiry into how the economy works in 2030, I think you set out largely for policymakers and economists what you think was wrong with the UK and what the options are to revive growth and deal with inequality. And I thought that would be a really useful conversation. So, can we start at the simple question? What's the problem? Yeah, that doesn't sound that simple, but yes, it's, it's, it's definitely the simpler of. Um, uh, it's better than easier than what you do about it. So, on on what's the problem? I think about it in two ways. So, the recent problem is that Britain is in a phase of relative decline. That doesn't mean we don't have great strengths. We absolutely, certainly do in terms of 
some of the industries that we are highly specialised in, our place in the world. We're obviously a rich country compared to the world as a whole, so we we shouldn't downplay lots of our strengths. But over the last 15 years, we've certainly been in a phase of relative decline. And by that, I mean that our productivity growth, how much we produce for each bit of hour of work we do, has been, yes, growing, but basically rounding to zero growth. And and all advanced economies have seen some kind of growth slowdown since the financial crisis. But we have seen by far the, the biggest, and it's been sustained over those 15 years. So we've seen about half the productivity growth of the rest of the advanced world over the course of the last 15 years. Now, a year or two of low productivity growth happens all the time. You know, economic statistics go up, they go down, that's fine. It's the sustained nature of that that is a problem. What does that mean in practice? Well, it means that wages today aren't higher than they were when we went into the financial crisis. So that's wages looking roughly like they were in 2008. On the OBRs, the Office for Budget Responsibilities forecast at the autumn statement a few weeks ago, they're expecting those wages in 2028-29 to still be at the levels they were in 2008. So we're talking 20 years of lost wage growth. Why is that happening? The main reason is that lack of productivity growth. There's some other techie stuff, but it's basically that. And how does that compare to the decades before? How's the last 10, 15 years compared with, if you like, life since the 60s and 70s? Well, we used to see wage growth of around 25, 30% every decade. And we've seen zero in the last 15 years. So that's the scale of what we are missing out on. If you want to make that in more human terms, had we carried on with the wage growth we were used to before the financial crisis up to today, then the average worker would have wages £10,000 higher than they are today. So £200 a week. It's huge. A household or an individual? An individual worker would be, t- average wages would be £10,000, a bit over £10,000 actually, higher had we kept going with the 2.2% wage growth we were used to before the financial crisis over the last 15 years, during which wage growth has basically rounded to zero. And when you listen to Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, he'll tell you that UK economic growth has outperformed competitors in the G7, I think, with the exception of the US. Is that true? So on is obviously, you know, everyone says get two economists in a room and ask about stats and they'll disagree with each other. So I think let's go through the different measures of success. So Jeremy Hunt, so he likes to focus on relative performance in terms of GDP. So headline, how much does the economy as a whole actually produce? The, um, now, on those measures, if you start in the right year, i.e. the year when Britain was particularly doing badly during the financial crisis and come forward to um, today then on GDP, Britain doesn't look like that much of an outlier. It looks pretty similar to lots of other advanced economies. Everyone's had a pretty rubbish time. Turns out, you know, cost of living crisis, a pandemic and a financial crisis is pretty bad for the West generally. Okay, What we actually care about in terms of people's living standards is two other different measures, though. It's GDP per capita, so just how much are we producing per person in the economy, because Britain has seen faster population growth than the rest of the lots of the rest of the advanced world over that time, partly because of the topic of today, higher migration, but also we're a slightly younger population and the rest. So population growth, that's not totally economically irrelevant, but it's not what matters for our living standards. What matters for our living standards is GDP per capita. On that basis, we've certainly been seeing decline since the financial crisis. Then if we look at what 
really matters for driving wages and the long-term driver of our living standards. It's it's not GDP per capita, it's what we call productivity, so it's how much we produce per hour. Because what's held up even our GDP per capita figures, even though our productivity and our wages have been a disaster, is more people working, so about 3% increase in the employment rate during the 2010s. That's the big success that George Osborne David Cameron always used to talk about when a Tory party used to talk about things that were going well rather than things that were a complete catastrophe. But they, um, So that made a big difference to GDP per capita. They, um, but doesn't raise productivity and doesn't raise wages, probably actually marginally lowers average wages. And then on top of that, we're working, some groups have worked longer hours. So particularly women have increased their average hours worked during those years. So put those two things together, more people working, more people in the country, more people working, um, and more those that are working, particularly if they're women and second earners in households, working slightly more, then that holds up your GDP per capita and your GDP figures, even though your wages and your productivity is tanking. But in the long run, you're not going to keep ever increasing your employment rate and ever working more hours, at least I hope not, because some of us are already working quite a lot now. And and what does no growth tell the people who don't believe in growth? So that is a popular view nowadays. So when I do public events around the country, people do say, well, we don't need any growth. They either self-identify as a degrowther or they are a degrowther but haven't heard the word yet. They... um, I would hope they would reflect and look. And there's two versions of that argument. Let's split them up. One is you can't have growth because you're using up finite resources and you'll destroy the planet. Okay, That's a slightly better thought through version. It's just missing the fact that what growth looks like in Britain today isn't burning more fossil fuels that the decoupling between fossil fuels and growth happened quite a while back. You know, really, we're talking about people working at the same computer, but doing it slightly better or selling it for slightly more than whatever they're doing. We're not really, in fact, lots of, you know, one way of thinking about growth is that a more efficient use of the resources that we actually are using. So in some ways, the right kind of growth is actually how we make sure um, that we do efficiently use the resources that we are extracting. So I don't agree with that, but at least you understand where they're coming from. Another argument is to say, Okay, but who cares about GDP because it doesn't feed through to ordinary people's living standards? Okay, people that spend a lot of time reading American literature, American economic literature, often do say that. That is definitely nonsense. So, the reason why wages are not growing is because the economy hasn't been growing fast enough. 15 years of stagnant wages heading into a cost of living crisis that's then completely hammered our living standards should have made everybody that was pro the lack of growth think very hard about that position. And I suspect I know the answer to this, but who hurts most in a decade where there's no growth? That does depend on a wide range of other decisions. So the lack of growth has meant has basically meant everybody's had a pretty tough time if they're working. On top of that, we've obviously had a range of policy decisions, including some big cuts to benefits for the poorest households. The average poorer household has lost, depending on how you measure it, three or six thousand pounds because of the benefit cuts since 2010. Now, those benefit cuts haven't been made since the 2019 election. If anything, actually, there's been a slight benefit giveaway since 2019. But in the George Osborne years, the first half in particular of the, well, maybe through to like 2017, that's when big benefit cuts came through. And so so those households have done very badly. On the wages front, though, the middle's done really badly. In fact, the top half's done pretty badly as well. And, and how do we compare, just going back to the France-Germany comparisons and the GDP per capita and wages? So if you take your £10,000 per worker worse off over the last 15 years, is that the same for workers in France and Germany? Is it the same for workers at the lower end of the income scale? 
Yeah. So that's a great question. So on wages, the answer is no. We have we have tried really hard to be the only ones with no wage growth, and no, everybody else has managed to have some wage growth. The, the French and Germans have had Everyone, better wage. Growth, everybody's had wage better wage growth, growth, basically, than us. There's some other reasons for that. We've had slightly higher inflation as well during this phase. But yeah, broadly, and, and in the US, they've had pretty decent wage growth. You know, then I think step back and then let's look at where does that leave us. So. That's what's happened in the short term in terms of our incomes and our wages stagnating. The, to understand where that leaves us relative to other countries, we need to bring in a longer term trend, which is that we're a very unequal country. So the second most unequal country in Europe, only Bulgaria manages to beat us on that front. The, um, that high inequality has not been getting worse. It's just been there since the early 1990s. We basically shot up in terms of how unequal we were in the 80s, and we've broadly stayed there ever since. We went from being a country that was a bit like modern Scandinavia in its inequality levels in the 70s to being a bit towards what the US is today. So we're not as unequal as the US, but we're more unequal than the rest. And Torsten, is that because the poorer in the UK didn't see much improvement in their incomes or because the richer in the UK just got so much richer? So both of those happened in the 1980s. So the top saw particularly fast income growth. There's a reason why the yuppies had the large phones. They, um, so they, you know, that was happening. And then there was a particular concentration of bad outcomes at the bottom, famously 3 million unemployed in the aftermath of the 80s recessions and the 90s recessions. That was quite geographically concentrated. At the same time, benefit levels for those who are out of work are being cut. They, um, so yeah, both things happened. The bottom the bottom didn't actively go backwards on average in the 1980s. So there was, you know, some slight income growth, which is more than we've seen recently, um, but they fell behind a long way. And some groups within the bottom, if you were unemployed, living in places that saw the hard end of deindustrialization, certainly went backwards and the top did very well in the 1980s. And when you say that since then, i.e. the last 30 plus years, we've just remained one of the most unequal countries in Europe, has that been a situation that's been static inside the country, i.e. inequality has sort of stayed the same? And has it remained static in terms of our inequality relative to other countries in Europe? Um, so inequality in the headline senses, the big picture has stayed in, stayed within the UK basically the same as it was in the early 1990s, i.e. very high, but not going up and not going down. Now, that's a big picture. People like me care a lot about little bumps around in the line. We spend lots of time analysing them. And even within that, under that headline staticness, mm. there's been a lot of change keeping it static. So I'll give you two concrete examples. If you want to be nice to the coalition government in the first, or even just the last 10 years, you would say that rise in employment pushed down on inequality because the people that benefited from the rise in employment were hugely focused at the bottom end, the poorest end of society. Okay, So it was, that was a pro-equality increase in employment. Similarly, the increase in the minimum wage that's been really, really quite significant over the last 20 years, that has taken pay inequality down to levels, hourly pay inequality, back to 1970s levels. Okay, So there's big things happening that are pushing down inequality. And actually, if, you, if you'd had, say, if you'd had the employment gains of the last 15 years, decade, and the minimum wage gains, but you hadn't done the huge benefit cuts at the same time, you might well have actually seen inequality actually coming down. But the two things have been leaning against each other. Similarly, there are other, you know, there were other things, for example, in the 2000s with the new Labour government that pushed down on inequality, significant increases in support for poorer families in particular, and poorer pensioners. Um, 
Pushing the other way was the, the very top doing very well in the 2000s. The, um, the hyper-globalization phase, good phase to be very well off. The, um, and also housing costs going up for poorer households, but down for richer households as mortgages got cheaper. So under those headlines of static high inflation in inequality, there are big moving parts, but they've roughly cancelled out. And can we, can we come back to the relative inequality I relative to Europe in one second, but just on that point you make about minimum wage and employment, but then thinking about benefits, listening to that, I'd say, aha, if you really want to do something about inequality in the UK, you're going to need to keep on doing employment and minimum wage, and then you're going to have to do something fundamentally different around benefits. And that means the hope of being a lower taxation country, a country with falling debt to GDP is just wishful thinking. And we might as well front up and talk about that. So I'm, so I think we should have a bit of humility about our lack of certainty about how high the tax level will have to be in future, because particularly because we don't know what the long-term path of interest rates is. And that really matters for our debt interest bill right now. And that's the main thing that's pushed up taxes in the last few years. So what, why have you got a Conservative Party pushing up taxes, even though they all say they came into politics to cut taxes? It's not the only reason, but the main reason is the debt interest bill has gone up. That could come back down a bit, which might take some pressure off. But in terms of planning an economic strategy for the country, if you're thinking big picture terms, I think anyone hoping to govern after the next election should be, a, you can't count on that happening. And so, yes, you should be assuming you're staying a higher tax economy than we were in the last two decades. So let's say we're 37 and a bit percent at the moment. Where do you think it naturally rests? If you want to deal with the benefits well, the, issues the and the equality issues you want to deal think with. About it is, so we averaged about 33% across the 2000s and the 2010s. Okay, So that's what people thought was normal. If you'd asked like, your average Treasury official, they would have said, you know, well, that's just what the British economy, that's what the British public will put up with. What have we learned in the last few years? That's complete nonsense. We've seen this huge rise, as you say, heading towards 37.7. That's an increase of about £4,000 per household over the course of the decade that we are living through. So it's a really hefty rise. I would have thought if, you, if interest rates stay remotely where they are, and everyone who's met a public service right now knows that there's not a lot of scope for taking resources out of public services, then I think you are looking at taxes staying rather than in the low 30s, in the high 30s. But whether it's 38 or it's 37 or it's 39, there are political choices to be made. And then debt as a percentage of GDP. So let's say that it's now knocking around 100% of GDP. Yeah, 95 where looks like we're heading around. It, does that then move if you want to make investments, if you want to have public investment that crowds in private investment, if you want to make some step changes in the way infrastructure works, that goes up to 110, 120, or is that 100% of GDP a meaningful ceiling? Uh, that is a very hard question to answer. So the way I would think about it is what have we learned in the last 15 years? We've learned that Debt levels are higher than we were used to. We were used to 35% of GDP in debt levels in the 2000s. Three once-in-a-lifetime crises in a row have taken us up, as you say, ratcheted us up to 95. 95 is manageable. We are managing it. That, the tax rises are happening. You know, the country's not, you know, giving up on trying to pay those debt interest bills. So we are managing, but it is putting us under a lot of strain. The... Um, Governments will want to think about how to reduce that strain, both in terms of how they manage the public finances. In terms of the long term, my personal view is, in an ideal world, you would want to see debt on a slightly faster falling trajectory than either of the main parties is anticipating. Because the, what they're both currently saying is, I promise you, I will give you forecasts all the time that promise debt will fall in five years' time. 
And in the real world, that means debt will never fall. One, because the five years, the five years time never arrives because it moves forward every year. And secondly, what do we learn from the last 15 years? Bad stuff happens. Stuff happens. But, but that suggests to me that there's a moment where you say, look, fair enough. We want to be responsible. We want to have taxes that pay for our public services. But there are times where we need to make investments, if you like, refurbishments of the economy. And those are capital expenditures. And we need to borrow to do that rather than to take that out of tax revenues. Isn't this that time? So I, I agree with you quite a lot of the way, which is at the moment, we have a set of fiscal rules that basically treat spending money on day-to-day public services exactly the same as investing in things that will help us drive a bigger economy in future. And that is not a good idea. So we focus on net debt, which just measures how much we've borrowed and spent as a country. We completely ignore whether that spending created an asset. For example, you know, the roads and the railways that help get those commutes uh, down or the MRI scanners that stop us all um, uh, dying. um, So, yes, I think we should look again at our fiscal framework. Ideally, you would have a framework less focused on net debt and more focused on what we call net worth that takes into account the assets on the public sector balance sheet, not just the debts, because that would stop politicians and the Treasury having an incentive to cut public investment whenever they need to manage the public finance. So what what happens right now? Any bad public finance forecasts come in, the first thing the Treasury will do is say, well, look, let's just massage this problem away by penciling in some big cuts to public investment. Nobody will notice or complain about it. It's just that in 30 years' time, we'll really wish we hadn't done that. And that's what we've been doing. We have been doing that for decade after decade after decade. And the rack school problem is an example of that. Yeah. I mean, the problems are literally every single listener, I'm sure, will know these problems. Just this net worth thing. So I hadn't heard this until relatively recently. And it's a bit like the 31 bus. You know, it's like they're none. And then they just come one after another another. And then you hear, oh, yeah, net worth, net worth, net worth. And it sounds like one of those techie things that's not significant. But I suspect it is very significant because it forces the Treasury to measure spending and investment against overall value of public assets, public yeah. services. Is that what net worth is? So so net worth is, 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 a, is a balance sheet measure. So it's not about day-to-day spending on public services. It's measuring the public sector balance sheet and saying, what does the public sector own by way of assets? And what does it what does it owe by way of debts? And the, um, so normally, so it includes everything that we think of in terms of net debt. Normally, i.e., how much is you know how much of a problem have we got in terms of owing other people uh, money? But it also then includes everything the public sector owns, and it has been getting quite a lot worse over time. Partly, we flogged off a load of stuff and below value, so that has that effect. Partly, the usual, same reasons net debt has got worse, which is we keep borrowing more money because we have big recessions. The, um, but also because we haven't had much of a, enough of an incentive on politicians to focus on getting good value out of those assets. So I'll give you a concrete example of why this, this matters. Okay, Why do politicians who have a net debt rule and focus even consider flogging off bits of the student loan book at below its actual value? And the answer is because they don't have a net worth focus, they have a net debt focus. And so if they sell that student loan debt, net debt goes down, even if net worth actually gets worse. 
And it's like, you know, it, it basically encourages any form of bad privatization. You sure. don't care about the assets. You flog it off for less than the value because your net debt comes down. That, that's one example of the problem with it. Does it, it doesn't also encourage you to focus enough on maintaining those assets that you've got. Like hospitals and schools, etc. Yeah, because, because if you were focused on, you'd then be worried about their value going down. You'd be focusing on it. We definitely, when we talk about investment, it's easy to talk about the shiny new trains that you're going to buy. A lot of what you need to do is keep maintaining your existing asset stock. So, so what do you do then, Torsten, that makes a difference to zero growth and high inequality? So I think the first thing to do is, is to step back and say, we're not after individual policies. We're after what an economic strategy looks like for the country, because in that's what Britain has lost. Britain is now unmoored in its sense of what it's trying to achieve, really. Now, what are we actually good at? Is Are we able to sell that to the world? And what would it take to make us be able to do that? Are we able to connect large connection parts of our population and our workforce to that uh, work? Will it deliver falling inequality? And what else is policy going to need to do on the tax and the redistribution side to make sure we're a fair country? And I, I, the, I, my case for optimism, which is you know maybe more in line with maybe how Jeremy Hunt comes, is because I don't think we should be we should not be fatalistic about Britain's place in the world. You know, yes, some countries that have got into this kind of stagnation get stuck there. Italy is the famous one going, you know, ever backwards. We forget Italy overtook Britain in overall GDP terms in the 1980s. In the 1980s, people wrote books about how Italy was this new growth model. Loads of Amer- Americans started panicking about the nimble, small Italian companies overtaking US conglomerates. Even as late as 2000, Italy was about the same, you know, same GDP per capita as Germany. But, you know, Italy is now closer to Spain than it is to Germany. It hasn't. It's it, Actually, its productivity growth has been productivity been falling for the last few decades, actually getting worse at using its resources. So Italy is the thing we're trying to avoid. We don't automatically escape stagnation, but equally, we don't have to end up as Italy is what I would say. Some countries that have big traumas like we've had do manage to get themselves back on upward trajectories. And we do have big strengths to help us do that. Uh, so first of all, what are those strengths? So Britain despite what, for example, most politicians, I see this in the Labour Party, as well as in, for example, Boris Johnson, they often talk as if a manufacturing revival is the thing that's going to drive Britain forward. Uh, that you is sort a, of let to be more like Germany thesis. Yeah, so for the thinking ones on the left, it's usually I'd like to be more like Germany. It, for the Boris Johnsons of this world, it's just like, I want to stand around some diggers and build stuff. It's, less, it's not even really a thought through <laughs> thing. It's and the high-vis jacket approach to it's the high. Yeah, and that may, may make total sense for politics, but it's a bad um, frame for thinking about your economic renewal. Only about 9% of the population works in manufacturing these days. It stopped falling, which I think is generally a good thing. The decline of manufacturing, the deindustrialization phase has now basically worked its way through. But employment growth is unlikely to grow significantly in those sectors. Partly it's because that, that isn't where Britain's strengths lie. There's some exceptions to that. Aerospace, booze. We're very good at making booze, which isn't usually what people think of when they say manufacturing. But actually, that's one of our strengths and has been for decades, booze. Um, so those kind of things are really important. Chemicals, another British success story in the manufacturing space. If On that world, partly because of the thing people like about manufacturing, which is that its, it, its productivity growth is generally faster 
That's what people always say is the case for having more manufacturing. That's completely misunderstanding the ordering. The reason why you aren't going to see higher employment growth is because the productivity growth is faster. Like we are getting better at running factories with fewer and fewer people in them is why the manufacturing share of employment is not going to grow hugely significantly. But it is really important for the economy as a whole. It's really important for some places. So Derby is going to be manufacturing. Cheshire is going to be chemicals. So those places... We should definitely be focused on them, particularly the high-value manufacturing. If that's what you care about, the most important problem is the is returning to frictionless trade with the European Union. Because the threat to supply the place of those companies, the good bits of British manufacturing, in those European supply chains is what we are seeing being cut away at. That's the thing when we're, you know, nobody wants to talk about Brexit, understandably, in British politics today. I completely understand that. I'm not advocating a return to the European Union. But unless you reduce the frictions at the border, and by reduce, I mean basically remove frictions at the border for our high-value manufacturing, you are going to see the decline of bits of that, the good bits of British manufacturing. And everyone wants to duck around that at the moment, but you know That's that what is what is going on. I mean, look at what's happened to chemicals trade. Look at what's happened to car trade. It's a disaster. Then what are we good at more generally where we're less dependent on those European supply chains? And actually, Britain is just basically good at all high-value services. And everyone says, oh, it's banking, there's too many bankers. That isn't the case. Our banking as our share of our exports has been falling consistently for the last 15 years. So what are services? So all high-value services. So, you know, yourself here, the media <laughs> is a big service industry, cultural industries, uh, business services, lawyers, accountants, marketing, advertising, um, betting. Like, well, you know, what does Stoke do very well? Betting. Runs a big betting industry from Stoke. Leeds actually doesn't talk about it much. Universities are services businesses? Absolutely. Education businesses. Yeah. So the label services, I think, sometimes is, is maybe now so broad as to be unhelpful. But what's good, the reason it makes more sense in Britain than in most advanced economies is that we are actually just good across the board at it. It's not just about financial And services. is that just English? We've got English language so we can export it? I think it. English helps quite a lot on the cultural services. So, like, why are we making an absolute fortune from Netflix? Yes, I think English is definitely a significant part of that. But I don't think it's just that. Britain has a lot of strengths. So if you follow that logic through then, Torsten, education, that's where you end up, isn't it? Education is important. I would actually, and that I think, but I slightly worry that that is, again, seen as a silver bullet. Actually, on the education side, you know, what is Britain? Britain does okay on the education front, actually. There's been some recent good news on school outcomes at 15, and we know we have a good university system. Yes, we definitely have problems we need to address in terms of the inequality of educational outcomes. So too many 18-year-olds have dropped out of education and our vocational routes, if you don't go through the A-level university route, are a disaster. Um, So those need addressing. But overall, that isn't the actual constraint. I would think more about what we talk about industrial strategy, right? What does an industrial strategy look like for a service economy? And I would encourage us to think about places. It looks like places because what cluster theory. I let's really focus on not, certain services. Think and certain about places. Broad, but not certain services. Think about certain places because the what a, what a service economy needs is places that have large skilled labor labor pools able to access almost always city centres, a large city centre where a wide range of industries, service industries that have overlapping skill needs. They all need the same kind of HR. They all need the same kind of IT. They need the same kind of, um, they probably don't need the same kind of podcasters, James, but they all have a lot of overlapping skill needs. So don't focus minutely on like, I'm just going to try and grow accountancy in Manchester. Instead, the industrial strategy objective is I've got to make sure Manchester, remember, you know, 2.8 million people, huge city, should be 
you know, very highly productive compared to the UK as a whole. In practice, is currently well below average productivity. Should not be the case. Why is that not the case? It's because Manchester doesn't operate like a large city should. It doesn't provide a large pool. It has some skilled labour, but large of that labour can't get to the city centre. The city centre is small compared to cities as a whole. And as a result, you don't see high value firms clustering there in the kind of scale we need to, to make Manchester and the Northwest and Britain rich. Because remember, there is no other route to the northwest of England becoming materially richer than it is today than making Greater Manchester much more productive. Uh, and how does net zero energy transition play into all of this? Well, we need to be doing it. I mean, that, that, We need to be doing it, but is it the driver of a more productive, higher income society, or does it just move money around within the economy? In the short term, net zero isn't going to make us massively richer. And I think the people that say... You know, it's the answer to all our growth problems. Again, it's not it's not a quite as bad as the list trust silver bullet because we do actually need to do it and getting on with it isn't causing huge problems, which big unfunded tax cuts would. But claiming it will definitely solve all of our inequality and our growth problems is wishful thinking. The best way, I think, to think about the net zero transition in the next t- 10 years is that it is a big investment project that will save us some money in the long term. The money it will save is largely via cars. EVs are cheaper to run. Once we've put in the charging networks and the rest and moved this fleet over to EVs, they are cheaper to run because they're cheaper to fix generally. They, um, so that will save us money in the long run. In the short term, really the best way to think about it is we need to – it's not going to raise GDP massively. It's probably also not going to harm GDP massively, as the cynics say. It's just going to mean we have slightly higher investment as a share of GDP and slightly lower consumption as a share of GDP. So can I end with a political question, Torsten? Given that the Conservative government looks increasingly like a circular firing squad, why would you not want a Labour leadership, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, to be spelling out in quite some serious detail what a very different economic policy would look like, including discussing tax rates and levels of borrowing and new approaches to spending? If you were advising them, would you say, shy away from that, focus on winning, and when you get into office, you can work out what you want to do? Or would you say, actually, no, the country really needs to hear what a manifesto for a different economic strategy looks like in some detail, even with all the risks that that means that you become the target of media and public attention? History broadly tells us that Politicians don't set out hugely detailed plans before any election, generally 97, 2010, um, hugely detailed. Like People don't want long lists of micro-policy. I think what is sensible, and if you go back and look at the 1979 manifesto, for example, from Margaret Thatcher, it doesn't include lo- like, almost any of the details of what she actually did in the years afterwards. But it does set out clearly what you're trying to achieve. It does have the the main themes are basically there. It is worth a read, actually. Even you, people that hate, I know, I know now talking about Margaret Thatcher's back in fashion, which is never good for British politics because <laughs> it's one of our, you know, psychodramas. But the um, so don't think about her. Just go and read the manifesto for and as a judge of. Okay, that does broadly say what is this government trying to be about? More freedom, less collectivism, and then my view is. Clear directions of travel are required to give people a sense of what you're about and to give you the the operating room in government to do that. Does that mean you need to either know exactly what you're going to do in every area? Because if you've learned anything from the last 15 years of British politics, it's that stuff turns up. Mm-hmm. And really, we're choosing people to be able to wrestle with stuff 
as well as having an absolutely clearly defined, I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F over 20 years. I mean, that's not what happens. But knowing what you're about so that when stuff happens, that you can wrestle with it in a way that's consistent with what your overall plan is, um, then that would be a good idea. So would I prefer both main parties to be setting out a bit more about what they're going to do differently beyond saying, in the Tories' case, I'd like taxes to be coming down, even though we know they're going up. Or in Labour's case, I promise you we're going to have a net zero transition and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Yes, I would prefer that world. And I think actually the British public, if you if you talk to the British public, we do in focus groups, obviously, to focus on our research purposes right now. But so people are not expecting to be told it's all going to be easy and it's all going to be fixed overnight. And that the public is basically right. There is not a silver bullet to fixing this overnight. What there is, is an opportunity to step back and realise what we're good at and what are, and given what the constraints that the world presents to us are, is there a way through that that moves us to be a higher investment nation, focusing on the things we're good at, um, making sure that we're as hard-headed at bringing down inequality as we are about getting growth up. That is definitely achievable. And all those countries that have done a bit better than us, but they've done it for a considerable period of time, we can start catching up towards those countries and that's what we should be doing. Torsten Bell, thank you very much for coming to talk to us. Thank, thank you. you, James. Tortoise.